We are glad to see you and uh, want to kind of get you a little updated on some stuff as we get started. By the way, if you're new here, my name is Frank and uh, welcome. Um, first of all, we are in our fourth week uh, of transition between uh, Sean Johnson and Cody Kimmel being here. Cody is going to be, his first Sunday will be here March 16th. He's going to start with us March 10th, but he'll be here uh, leading on March 16th. So again, I just want to I want to thank the music team, the worship leaders, uh, Jared and Shanda Wallace especially, who have led us uh, three of the four last weeks, and their job that they've been doing in the interim. So we really appreciate the way they have stepped up. And yeah, that's I want to mention that. also want to mention, um, David just read the, uh, the scripture, and you see it's uh, verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 8. Uh, a lot of people have been anticipating the build-up to next week when we do just verse 28. That's a lot of people's favorite verse. And uh, then comes uh, 29 and 30, where that, that um, word that always brings all Christians together, the word predestined, all Christians just come together around that word. Uh, and so, <laughs> anyway, here's, here's, here's what I want to challenge you on these next three weeks. These next three weeks, we dig into some incredibly deep stuff and even though we're only doing five verses in the next three weeks, I want you to understand that we won't be able to get to it all. And, and we may generate more questions than we're able to answer in the next three weeks from up here. And so I'm encouraging you to get into your redemption communities and dig in further and, and wrestle with, uh, with these concepts, with these uh, texts, with these verses. It would be very important for you to do that. Okay? Uh, a couple other things. Today is our church picnic. It's at 4 o'clock at Pierce Park which is at 46th Street and Oak. It's right across from the Costco down there. And uh, from 4 until, you know, it gets dark and we decide that we've had enough. The church is providing the beverages, uh, and then the food is going to be done by Short Leash, which is, Short Leash is actually a gourmet hot dog company. So um, I'm sure they have hot dogs made out of all sorts of things, including normal hot dog stuff. But... Uh, you'll, you'll be able to find something neat, but these guys really specialize in that, and they're, and they're really good. And so I'd encourage you to uh, be there. There'll be a lot of activities as well, and, and, and I believe there's going to be a Frisbee football game. There was last year that was a lot of fun. Catch and volleyball and just people sitting around talking to each other will be a lot of fun. So that's one thing. Second thing is, again, next Sunday we're going to be doing baby dedications um, in, in uh, both services. And so please contact our office, Stephanie Shoemate at redemptionaz.com. Her email is in your bulletin, so contact her if you want to have uh, your child dedicated. We'll get that done for you. Uh, also, this coming Wednesday, uh, we are starting, what, what, what is the date of this Wednesday? Is it the 26th? It's the 26th. Uh, we are starting a six-week women's Bible study here uh, at the church from 10 to 12. I, I believe there's child care provided, but uh, if you're interested in that also, would you please contact Stephanie Shoemate? If you have any questions about anything in life, just contact Stephanie Shoemate. She'll be able to help you with that. Again, Stephanie Shoemate at redemptionaz.com. Uh, a couple other quick things. Um, the Lost and Found we put in the lobby this morning. We do that maybe once a month or once every six weeks and open it up. We would really like you to look through that and see if there's anything you recognize and, and claim that. Or anything that you like and need, you could go ahead and just, I don't know. Whatever. But the lost and found is out there, so we would appreciate it if you would check that. And then also, uh, Redemption Church apparently has made uh, t-shirts, 
And uh, we got delivered the t-shirts, so we have these for sale uh, in the lobby as well. We're just going nuts with all kinds of stuff. And in fact, I'm going to tell you that during the message about a book that uh, I have out there that's actually we're offering uh, to those of you that think you might uh, benefit from it uh, for free. So uh, let me pray and we will get into Romans chapter 8 verses 26 and 27. God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are sovereign, you're majestic, and even we thank you for the mystery, which is where we really have to step up in faith, uh, because that mystery is, is uh, somewhat confounding to us, and, uh, and, but we know that your, your word claims that you are good, and you have a purpose, and because you're sovereign, that's all going to work together, uh, for good, and so we, uh, we have faith in that, we have our Open that, uh, and we press into that. And God, as we look at this passage today, these two verses, we discuss a couple of things that are really important to um, the body of Christ. I just pray that you'd be with us, your Holy Spirit would guide us, would bless us, would open our hearts and our minds to what's said, um, help us to understand what it is that you're trying to uh, help us to know, and God, uh, ultimately, that you would be given all the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to I want to just give a quick overview again of chapter eight. We've been in chapter eight for six or seven weeks, and we have another four weeks to go, including this uh, Sunday. So chapter eight's a big deal. Um, so let me just give a quick overview. I haven't done this in several weeks. At the end of chapter seven, Paul presents us with the gospel in in the, the clearest terms possible. He he says, "What a wretched man I am." Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's the gospel. I'm the problem. I can't save myself. And unless God intervenes in my life through Jesus Christ, I'm in big trouble. That's the good news. The bad news is that we're in trouble. The good news is that God saves us through uh, his, his son. And then chapter 8 is all about our security as Christians, our, our security as believers in Christ, the fact that we cannot be defeated even though sometimes we feel like we're defeated. And chapter 8 starts with that magnificent verse. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it starts by telling us there's no condemnation. In four weeks, the last, uh, the last uh, message on Romans 8 is going to be about how there's also no way that we can be separated from the love of God through Jesus Christ. So you have on one end of chapter 8, no condemnation. On the other end, we can't be separated from his love. And then everything in between is, is, is the understanding that we cannot be defeated because we're in Christ. We can't lose. We're battling, we're fighting, there's issues, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be victorious. And so really chapter 8, a lot of chapter 8 is about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talked about how the Holy Spirit was only mentioned four times in, in Romans up until chapter 8, and then in chapter 8 it's mentioned 15 or 20 times. And so chapter 8 is, is about not our power, not, not our ability, but about the power and the ability of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us now. And, and if you look at chapter 8, you see that kind of through the first 16 or 17 verses, what we see is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But then today, we really see that shift in these two verses, 26 and 27, to what you might call the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit, Paul describes him as ministering to us in these verses. Now, he's always ministering to us, but it's 
very specific in these verses. So I want to read the verses again. They are magnificent verses. And I know that some of you are coming up and saying, you know, you say that every week, Frank, that these are magnificent verses. I, I know. This, this week I really mean it. These are magnificent, <laughs> magnificent verses, okay? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we look at that and we go, okay, what weakness is he talking about? Is this some small isolated weakness or is this a, 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 a general weakness? We'll talk about that. But the Spirit helps us in it. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Can I get an amen there? Have you ever struggled in your prayer life? What to pray for, how to pray, okay? Well, Paul says right here, we're not sure about it, but... The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? We'll try to get a look at that as well. And then verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what, the mind, uh, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And, and so what's interesting about this passage is we have... Two topics, other than the fact that the Holy Spirit is at the center of this, and we need to talk about that, we have two topics here that Christians for years have struggled with, and that is prayer and God's will. And so we're going to look at both of those things within the context of the Holy Spirit ministering to us, and so we're going to be really busy. And so I've already kind of asked it, is anybody, does anybody ever struggle with prayer? And the answer, of course, is for most of us, yes. Uh, one of the scholars, one of the commentators that I read wrote this about prayer. I found it really encouraging. Prayer. Prayer is kind of like learning to be a player in a symphony. It takes time and effort, practice and patience. There are plenty of mistaken notes and some groans, too. But there is progress and joy and encouragement since God is conducting the perfect heavenly symphony and the Holy Spirit continues unabated to prepare us for the day when we will be able to take our place in the divine orchestra. In the meantime, we can know that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the, the paraclete, the helper, the advocate, God himself is by our side as a wise and faithful teacher. And so we're going to start by leaning into that, that, that idea of prayer and how the help Holy Spirit Helps us. And, and, and so we'll start with that first tiny little sentence. There's a lot there. Uh, Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now that word likewise means in the same way. And, and you might say, well, what exactly is he referring to in the same way as what? Certainly he's referring back to uh, verses 22 and 23 in Romans chapter 8. Let me read those to you. He's referring back to what we talked a little bit about last week, where Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, there's that word groaning again, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that likewise is specifically looking back Certainly to those verses there that, that the Spirit is helping us as we groan and wait patiently but also eagerly for the redemption of our bodies for the second coming of Christ. But also, it also refers to the totality of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So it refers to everything that Paul has said 
so far in chapter 8 about the Holy Spirit. In the same way that he empowers us to put sin to death, in the same way that he's empowered us to be adopted by God as his kids, in the same way that he, that he gives us peace and, and, and grace and, and, and to help us and to encourage us when we suffer, in that same way the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And now we get to that word, weakness. What does that word necessarily mean? What does it refer to? And, and, and this, is, this is interesting as well. The word weakness does not refer to some minor defect in our life. It's not like we're 95% good, but we've got 5% that we struggle with, and that's where the Holy Spirit needs to come in and help us. You know, I'll do my best, and God will do the rest. And of course, my best is like in that 90 or 95 uh, fifth percentile. Okay, That's not it at all. It's not some isolated character flaw that the Holy Spirit is leaning into. This word ref refers to the total inability uh, of us to be, to be who we really should be apart from God. That, that, that God says, look, apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and so this, this word weakness refers to our identity apart from God. If, if Christ isn't with us, if the Holy Spirit isn't indwelling us, if we haven't been adopted as, as God's children, that, then it's... That's our identity. Hi, I'm Frank. Pleased to meet you. I am weakness. It, it's, it's completely who we are apart from God. But again, Paul says, but thanks be to God through his son, Jesus Christ. So this is the gospel that he helps us in our weakness. But there's also a sense in which, in which there, there are a couple of things very specific in this context that Paul is also talking about that we need to sort of unearth and, and dig out because he goes on to say, for we do not know what we ought to pray or how we ought to pray. So he's leaning into something specific as well. And there's two things here that he's, that he's leaning into. Number one, we also have a physical weakness, right? The physical weakness is demonstrated in, in the gospel stories when, when the disciples were asked to pray for Jesus on the last night of his life when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they were asked to pray. And what happened to them? They kept, they kept falling asleep, right? I'm sure this never happens to you, but occasionally at night I'll be laying in bed and I'll be praying and then I'll fall asleep as I'm praying and I never get to finish my prayers. We're physically weak. So some of us, I, I know from stories, you'll be praying... At, at lunch at your desk at work and you'll fall asleep as you're praying. Here's what Paul is saying when you fall asleep. The Holy Spirit's got your back. He's there helping you. He's, he's there interceding for you. Our physical weaknesses are not going to keep the Holy Spirit from helping us. But even more in the case here, the weakness is actually a lack of understanding. It's ignorance. Now understand, it's not stupidity. There's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. It's, it's, it's ignorance. It's just a lack of understanding. It's a, it's a lack of fully knowing what we should do. Paul says right after this sentence, he says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now again, I, I, I'm sure that this never happens to us in the 21st century. But back in the days of Paul and Job and Elijah, you know, ancient spiritual losers, they would set out to pray and guess what? Very often, they would not know how they ought to pray. And these are, these are Bible heroes of ours. And, and I want you to think about this. I'm going to run through four real quick, because this should help us. This should encourage us some. You look at Job. Job was described by God in the Bible as no one on earth like him. He was so righteous that there was no one on earth like him. This was one righteous guy. 
was Job. Yet he was confused and he struggled in prayer. In chapter 7 he is uh, of Job, Job is praying in what I would call verbal gropes. And it sounds a lot like the way we pray for it. We, we, we pray, God, what's going on? What am I supposed to say? Then there's Elijah. Elijah was a, was a man of incredible courage, a, a great man of God, and we love to tell the stories of Elijah when he's on Mount Carmel and he just killed it against the 850 prophets of Baal. 850 guys he takes on on Mount Carmel, but then physically fatigued, emotionally drained, he runs in great fear from Jezebel. Again, I'm glad that none of us ever get tired or depressed or, or have to run from crazy women named Jezebel. I'm glad we never have to do that today. What does Elijah pray for in the midst of that? He prays, God, just take me. Just kill me. That's what he prayed. Esther, one of my, one of my favorite, favorite Bible heroes. But she was, at one point, even though she, doesn't, she wasn't a, necessarily a willing participant, at one point... Uh, she had gotten so attached to the comfort of her position in the palace as, as the queen that, that when Mordecai, her uncle, came with her and said, we've got issues and you're the key to this whole thing, she was, she was confused about the spiritual and political steps that she was going to have to take and, and, and didn't exactly know what to say or what to do. And only after great wrestling did we see that she had some measure of light, and yet she proceeded not in complete confidence, but, but simply saying, well, I'm going to have to go do this, and if I perish, I perish. That was her prayer. Now, well, I'm going to do it, but if I, if I perish, I, I perish. Well, one more guy. This is one of my favorites, too. This is a New Testament guy. This is a guy named Jairus. And we find his story in Mark chapter 5. Uh, Jairus uh, had a 12-year-old, I believe, 12-year-old daughter who was dying. She was critically ill. She was on her way to dying. And, and when you have a situation like that, you tend to get as, you, you'll try anything. And so he heard about this guy, Jesus, and so he ran to Jesus and he said, my, my daughter is perishing. Would you please come and save her? And, and Jesus said, yes, I, I will come. But the problem was, was, was that there was a huge crowd around Jesus that were pressing up against him. And so as he was working his way to Jairus' house, it was really slow going. This crowd was waylaying him. And then Jesus got waylaid even further because this woman comes up who's been uh, uh, bleeding nonstop for 12 years. And this is a woman, at, we're, we're told, who has, who's gone to all the doctors and she spent all of her money trying to fix this bleeding problem and yet she's only gotten worse and now she's also desperate. And she, she believes that if she touched Jesus, maybe she could be healed. And so she touches Jesus and, and she's healed. But then Jesus gets into a, a conversation with her too. So now he's not only going slow, but he's stopped and he's talking to this woman. And you can just sense Jairus is standing there going... Come on, man. She's chronic. I feel for her. She's, but, but you can come back after you fix my daughter. She's critical. She's dying. You can come back and talk to this woman later. And, and you can just sense his impatience. And then finally, Jesus and Jairus are back on their way. And then somebody runs up to Jairus. And, and what I would say is one of the least compassionate statements ever recorded in the Bible. The guy says, hey, your daughter is dead. Don't bother to teach her anymore. That was it. And, and Jairus collapsed. And Jesus walks over, Jesus, he's got Jesus there, and Jesus walks over and he says, do not be afraid, 
only believe. But, but Jairus, in the midst of all of that, was confused and didn't understand how to pray or how to behave or how to act, which is certainly understandable. Uh, Jairus was confused, but Jesus was completely in control. What we, what we fail to understand about this story is that Jairus apparently had a paradigm where the only way Jesus was going to be able to save his daughter was, with, was if he did it before she died and if he did it in person. And what he didn't understand is that Jesus is actually God, and so he could save his daughter after she died, and he could save her from anywhere. He eventually does go to the house, but he did heal her after she had died. Jairus didn't know that. See, here's the difference between you and I, and this is the source of our ignorance. Jesus knows everything. Jesus has every backstory. Jesus knows what's going on from every possible angle. The only thing we know is what's going on from our angle, and we're in the weeds, and he's up here looking at everything. And that's the source of our ignorance. And so we don't know what we ought to pray very often. Sometimes our prayer is very simply, what should we pray, God? And I, and I want you to begin to see this. Many of us are, are so certain that confusion and trepidation and ignorance and uncertainty and weakness about prayer is a strictly us and a strictly 21st century or maybe even 20th century phenomenon. And it's not. You've ever thought, why can't I be more like Job or Esther or Elijah? I would say, you are. You are them. Because Job and Esther and Elijah weren't who they were because they were special, but because God is God and he worked through them. And so the Holy Spirit literally comes alongside of us and helps us in prayer. And certainly we need to understand that this, this help in prayer that, 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 that the Holy Spirit gives us is connected to our suffering that Paul talks about in both verses 17 and 18 of Romans chapter 8. The specific suffering in verse 17 that, that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Christ, we will experience because of our faith, but also the general suffering because of, because of the corruption of the world and the sinfulness of humanity that, that everyone experiences that Paul begins to talk about in verse 18. Our prayer is designed to help us in that suffering. And, and we need to understand this is not a passage about how we don't have to pray. Some people will read this and go, ah, well, good, that's great. The Holy Spirit's interceding for me. And then I, maybe I don't even have to, to pray. No, Paul is, Paul is not saying we don't have to pray. He, he, he's not saying that because prayer is challenging and somewhat confusing, we can just give up. No, 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 no. Paul's message is not one of defeat, but rather one of encouragement. He's encouraging us that we should pray and that we should pray even more because the Holy Spirit is there. Paul's message is to, is to stick with it, to keep after it, to, to hang in there, to persevere, to find a community of prayers and, and get in those communities and pray with each other and lean into the Spirit helping you and just pray. Because like everything else, the Holy Spirit is what gives us life and power, not us. And all of us, all of us have these questions about prayer at one time or another. What if I do it wrong? Sometimes, I've admitted this before, sometimes I won't pray because I'm a little afraid that God won't answer yes. And I really don't want to hear him say no to me. So I don't have, I don't have to fear rejection or disappointment if I just don't pray. That's a, that's a lack of faith 
in the understanding that God might have actually something better for me because he knows all the backstories and he might be able to work something more to my advantage. My frustration and my anger in life is always about not trusting God, ultimately. And so we ask these questions. What if I don't get what I pray for? What if, what if, what if I do it wrong? What if, here, here's another one. What if I actually do get what I pray for? Some of us have learned that we need to be careful what we do pray for. Because he might go ahead and give that to us. Will, will my prayers be heard? Will they be effective? And how will I ever know if God is sovereign, does prayer even make a difference? Yes. Paul says those are legitimate concerns and legitimate questions. And the answer is always, does not lie in you and me, but it lies in the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Paul says the Holy Spirit himself helps us in our weakness by interceding for us with groans too deep for words. So that word helps. It, it in the Greek, it refers to a person who comes alongside of you in order to take part in the heavy load you have and to help you bear that load. I, I partner a lot with uh, a ministry called Alongside Ministries. It's a, it's a prison ministry that helps uh, men and women who are in prison the last couple of years of their, of their, um, uh, of their sentence go from transition from prison into uh, assimilating back into the world and back into the culture and trying to do it, uh, trying to do it well and successfully and effectively, and not reoffend and have to go back to prison. And they call themselves Alongside Ministries, and that's where they got the name of their ministry. It's from this Greek word that we translated as helps. That's where they got it, and that's what the Spirit does for us. He's, he's alongside of us, shoulder to shoulder, face to face, back to back, all three of them. And he does this by interceding for us. That word means to plead another's case, to advocate on behalf of another, someone who may not even be present. You're advocating for someone who may not even be there. Man, that last prayer I prayed was, was done so poorly. I don't even feel like I prayed, and I don't even feel like I was there. Again, the Holy Spirit's got your back. That's what Paul's saying. He's got your back. I would even say that we can look at these verses and understand that this idea that we talk about sometimes in, in the church where people will say, hey, hey, you can rest assured God is never going to give you more than you can handle. Don't worry, he won't give you more than... Have you ever felt like God has given you more than you can handle? Yeah. Of course. I can't tell you how often I'll talk to somebody doing pastoral counseling and they'll, they'll bring that up. They'll say, and people tell me all the time, uh, God will never give me more than I can handle. And I'm shaking my fist at God saying, you must think an awful lot of me, God, because you're giving me way more than I think I can handle. The point is, is that God does give us more than we can handle. Because if it's only about how much we can handle, then we are the ones doing the work. We have the power. We are the ones who are worthy enough. And that is not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that it's God, not us. So he does give us more than, than, than we can handle, but it's the Spirit who's come right alongside to help us because it's his power and not ours. So, so when we don't know what to pray, understand, that's when we probably have more than we can handle, and that's when the Spirit is at his most effective in our lives if we would lean into him and trust him and rely on him. 
I have a friend. Uh, a few years ago, young younger couple, um, they had one child. She was pregnant with their second. Both of them had jobs, but they were in financial trouble. In the same week, they both lost their jobs. She's pregnant. No income now. Their house goes into foreclosure. And they began to pray. This was their prayer. They began to pray that God would take one of them because they did have life insurance. And so they feel, felt like if God took one of them, the life insurance would bail the other one out. God gives us more than we can bear. And we don't know how to pray. And that's why God also gives us the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. There's times when you're unable to articulate your prayer as well. I have two daughters, they're 21 and 17. They have a pretty good command now of the English language, but when they were tiny, when they were little, they would, they would walk up to me in full confidence, and, and they would start to talk to me in, in words that a couple of them I might be able to understand, but really, uh, I, don't, I don't mean this pejoratively, but really it was just kind of gibberish, and I didn't understand what they were saying, but they came in full confidence, speaking their gibberish, because they knew that I would stop and listen and I would love them. And I would do everything I could to, to try to help them and, and understand. See, what we need to understand is that prayer is not a formula. Prayer is not an incantation. Prayer is submission. That's what prayer is. Prayer is recognizing who God is and who we are and realizing that we need the Holy Spirit to be able to help us to do this. And understand, prayer is not about changing God's mind, but rather it's us in our brokenness longing for his protection, his provision, his perfection, and his will. And how does the Spirit do this? The Spirit does this with groanings too deep for words. Groanings too... Now, this is the third or fourth time that Paul has used this word groaning just in, the, in a few verses here, going back to last week as well, and it's only used six times in the entire New Testament. So this must be a really important concept here. And so what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to get, back, get, get across the idea that what you're doing is not easy. Paul knows this is not easy. He knows that life is tough and it's, and it's a challenge. There's a great line in the movie, I can hardly go a sermon without mentioning a movie, there's a great line in the movie, A League of Their Own. When, when Dottie, the, the catcher who was the most valuable player in the league, goes up to the manager, Tom Hanks, and, and, and he's mad at her because she's quit, and she said, it just got too hard. And he said, it's supposed to be hard. The hard is what makes it great. Sometimes I feel like God needs to come to us and say, it's supposed to be hard. The hard is what makes it great because then you lean into the spirit and you actually see God working in your life. The hard is what makes it great. Our burdens are never to be scoffed at. That's what Paul is saying. Life is hard. And, and helping with our prayers, when the spirit helps us with our prayers because life is hard, it... it it's not the type of thing that you just do while chattering away in breezy conversation. It requires groaning. This is, this is an earthly uh, illustration. I understand that. Uh, and it doesn't even approach, but maybe it'll help. Have you ever helped somebody move? Or have you been blessed enough to be able to avoid that your whole life? <laughs> you ever help somebody move and you get to the refrigerator or the, or the sectional couch or the marble coffee table? Okay, when you're helping them move that, 
Are you lifting that marble coffee table going, oh, the Suns are really playing well without Eric Bledsoe. Isn't that surprising? What's your position on the doctrine of electric? <laughs> You're groaning. You, you don't have time to chatter. You're groaning. It's a burden. And, and, and the Spirit is there to help. He's, he's the helper. He's the advocate. He's the alongside one. The Spirit is not sitting this one out. That's what one commentator said. I love that. The Spirit is not sitting this out. He's not, never does he sit back and go, okay, <laughs> you know, here we go. He's there. He's there helping. And, and, and we need to ask for that help. And we need to go to him still. But, but he's already there helping. Lean into that. And, and check this out. Sometimes, sometimes it's not just that we don't know what to pray for or we're afraid to pray, pray or we're confused about prayer. But sometimes we're so desperately stressed or physically incapacitated that we literally cannot pray. Spirit does it for us. Someday, someday it's possible that you and I, at different times I'm sure, will be lying in a hospital room and we will be in a situation where we cannot even talk. We can't communicate. The Spirit has got us covered. He's interceding for us. See, the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't sit back and give us advice on how to pray. This is not a tutorial. Instead, He rolls up His sleeves and He gets, in, he gets into the nitty-gritty with us and He does it with us. And if He's not doing it with us, He's doing it for us. It's both. And one of the awesome ways that He does this is that He covers our inadequacies by praying right in line with the will of the Father. And there's our second challenging issue, knowing the will of God. I'm going to spend less time on this. It's not that it isn't as important, but I'm just, I, I, I'm going to spend a little bit less time on this, and I would encourage you to get into your, your redemption communities and talk about this again or have coffee with somebody. I'm, you can always call me for some pastoral counseling, and we can get you scheduled for that if this is something that you're really wrestling with. I understand that. But I also... I just, I want to, for those of you that like books and can be helped by books, uh, my experience is that I like books and I can be helped by books and I've read some books on this issue. I want to recommend some books that I think are helpful uh, in this issue. Here's the first one. It's, it's uh, Decision Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen and Robin Maxim. This is a, this is a, uh, this is a thick book, but it's very readable. It's thick, meaning it's, I don't know, 350 pages, but it's very readable and very, very helpful. It's considered today a classic in this area of understanding the will of God. Uh, here's another one, Jerry Sitzer. Not as thick, even more readable, and, and a really a fantastic book. It, it's called um, The Will of God is a Way of Life. And just a, uh, a little... Uh, disclosure here, a disclaimer. Jerry Sitzer is one of my all-time favorite Christian authors. He's a professor of church history at Whitworth University in Washington. This is one of the many books he's written, and it is absolutely fantastic and helpful. Um, then there's one other by Jerry Sitzer. I think the name of this, the title of this book, will capture your attention and your imagination. When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayer. Ooh, I'm writing that one down. That's the way people react to this book. It's very helpful, but here's a little bit of a challenge with this book. It's actually a sequel to a book that he wrote 10 years earlier. And in order to fully understand and appreciate this book, I really recommend that you go back and read the book that he wrote in 1994 called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. 
This is a book he wrote in 1994 in the midst of tremendous anguish, grief, and suffering because he had lost his mother, his wife, and his two-year-old daughter in the same car accident. And, and uh, four years after that happened, he wrote this, uh, this book uh, processing his relationship with God and, and how God helped him in that. This book right here is considered a classic today now in most circles. And so if you want to read that book, uh, When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayer, and you're thinking that I'm going to have to buy two books, um, what we did was we brought in 18 copies of this book, Grace Disguised. It's maybe 200 pages, pretty small, big font, no pictures except on the cover. But you can get through it, and, and you're more than welcome. It's on, the, uh, it's on the ledge out in the lobby right back there. You're more than welcome as you leave to take one until they're gone, and I would encourage you to take it and read it. I, I literally, I've, I've probably given away uh, close to a thousand copies of this book, and everybody who's read it has told me it's been very helpful to them. So those are some books that I think <clears throat> can help you in, in wrestling with, with God's will. But let me also kind of lean into it a little bit. Again, as I study, it's not only from these books that I study, but also the commentators. And, and um, I, I want to just kind of start the discussion with you that you might... Um, uh, pick up in your, in your RCs and discuss even further. Uh, a lot of people approach God's will this way, and I think it's a good and helpful and interesting way uh, to approach it. Uh, they say that, 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 that there's different kinds of God's will, and, and that the first one would be what they call God's sovereign will. His, God's volition to do what he determines to do. Sort of a, thus saith the Lord kind of a thing. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's in control. He can move planets. It's his sovereign will. He's in control and he is in charge. If you want some good passages about his sovereign will, you, you can look. Uh, remember during Advent, the four weeks of Advent, we, we went through Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. That's a great example of God's sovereign will. But these next two weeks, these next three verses, we deal with great example of God's sovereign will. Let me read them for you, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. God is the one working them together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called... He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's a, that's a good understanding of God's sovereign will, a good starting place anyway. Then there's a second kind of will that, that we see in the Bible that God exercises and expresses, and that would be God's moral will. God's moral will is defined this way. It's what God desires from us as we are being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than simply what he decrees. He, he, he lays out for us principles and, and what we might call praxis, the practice of life as a Christian. He lays that out for us. That would be God's moral will. A lot of Romans 12, if not all of Romans 12, is about God's moral will. Let me read you verses 9 through 18 of, of, of Romans 12, and you'll get, a, you'll get an understanding of, of what we might call God's moral will. Paul writes, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one, outdo one another in showing honor, 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So that would be a, a kind of a starting point to understanding God's moral will. But then there's this third one. And, and people call it something like this. It's God's specific individual will for your specific life. Your specific life. What is, my spe what, is, what is God's specific will for my specific life? And how did he communicate that to me? How is that expressed and how do I, how do I live that out? In other words, there's a specific romantic partner for me. There's a specific job for me. There's a specific neighborhood or house for me. Uh, Gary Friesen, in his book, he says, he, he calls this finding the dot. God has given us a dot, but he hasn't told us exactly where the dot is, and he begins to reveal that to us, and we've got to find the dot. There's a dot out there somewhere that has our name on it. And, and, and you can kind of see where I'm going already, I think. This can be very frustrating and hopelessly subject, subjective, right? Very frustrating hopelessly subjective. And this is the one that we as Christ followers tend to struggle with, both in practice and in whether or not it even legitimately exists. Some people have found a few verses that, that uh, they believe support the idea, but I would, I would say as your pastor, it's weak at best. I, I, I'm really big on God's sovereign will and his moral will, but I'm not so much on the individual will. Uh, let me unpack that just a little bit. I would also argue that as you read through church history, this idea of his individual, specific individual will for your life has really only emerged uh, in the wake of, of, of more modern Western thought where we emphasize the individual. We didn't worry so much as Christians about our indi the, God's individual will for our lives until we became really obsessed with ourselves based on Western thought. We, we were more interested in God's sovereign will and God's and God's moral will. And, and so I would suggest that if we submit to God's sovereign will, and by the power of the Holy Spirit we seek His moral will, that's when we're in the specific will for our specific lives. That's when we're there. We're submitting to His sovereign will. We're, we're, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're doing what we can by the power of the Spirit to live in His moral will, that's when we're in his, his individual will. But so often, so many of us are so focused on His individual will for us, it's like, yeah, sovereign will, moral will, whatever. What's He want from me? He wants sovereign will and moral will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's He want from me? Focus on His sovereign will and His moral will, and you will find yourself in His individual will, I believe. And I think these books might be able to help you a little bit with that. I want to finish with three questions, and then just... Some quick observations about what I hope you take away from this today. And uh, these questions actually come, I think they're helpful, they come from uh, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Romans chapter 8. And here's the first one. And, and, and he's really dealing with this idea of specific individual moral will. First question is, uh, I'm sorry, the specific individual will for us. 
First one is, does God ever reveal to us specific parts of his plan for our lives? Perhaps. Perhaps he does. But if he does, we need to understand that it's fairly infrequent and it's going to be really challenging. This is the other area of the specific will that, that can get very challenging for us. Uh, there are a few times when I believe God has specifically spoken into my life and said, this is something I really need you to understand and do and live with. And I will tell you, every time, it was hard. And there were two characteristics that were absolutely true every time this has happened. Number one, it was biblical. And number two, it was not something that I was pining for. It was not something that I was sitting there going, God, I really wish I could do this. It was actually something that, that really challenged me. So it's biblical and challenging. That's when it's happened in my life. I want you to be very, very careful of, of the idea that God's going to speak to you some night and tell you you're going to win $4 million at the casino tonight. <laughs> now, very seriously, I have literally had people tell me, God is telling me to leave my wife and marry my secretary. <clears throat> no, he's not. <laughs> and if you understood his sovereign will and his moral will, you wouldn't fall for that trap. Okay? You see, you see where we're going? Second question. Can we expect him to reveal this specific individual will? No, not expect. That's part of our problem. Outside of Scripture and Jesus, no one has any right to claim a demand from God that they reveal this specific will. You remember a couple weeks ago when Sean Myers was preaching and he, and he told us that, that story about him going on the Grand Canyon hike? And, and God used that time to tell him, quit throwing out fleeces and just trust me. When, when we seek God's individual will, very often, here's how he's answering. Just trust me. Just trust me. That's my specific will for your life. Just trust me. Have faith. That's how you please me, is you have faith. And then number three, should we ever humbly seek such, such direction? Yes, of course. But we should never do it in a way that's going to make us frustrated or indecisive or angry if God doesn't cooperate with us. This is a secondary issue, I believe, to the issue of God's sovereign will and God's moral will. Now, here's what I know to be true about the relationship between prayer and God's will, which we have both in this passage today. The more we pray, the more God is going to lead us to his sovereign and his moral will, and that will help us with everything else in our life. So here, just very quickly. Some things I really want to summarize and hope that we remember from this passage today. Number one, we are supposed to pray. That's what Paul's telling us. Number two, we need to quit expecting that prayer is going to be easy. Maybe it is for some people. I, I know there are some people who, I mean, they pray. And it, seems to, it just seems so easy. But for the vast majority of us, we struggle with our prayer lives. It's challenging. Number three, we're going to get better at prayer the more we do it, but you got to do it more often. I, I tell communication students all the time, the only way you're going to get better at public speaking is to go out and do it. That's the only way. Those of you who want to be writers, guess what? The only way you get better at writing is by watching TV, of course. <laughs> you got to write. It's the same thing with prayer. And I know get better at prayer is a very subjective thing to say. When I say that, I mean you're going to get more comfortable and you're going to, you're, going to discover, you're going to discover God in the process. 
Number four, there is victory, not just in getting better at prayer, but really the, the bigger victory is actually in persevering in prayer. Uh, Spurgeon once wrote this. The Prince of Preachers once wrote this. Continue with double earnestness, even when no visible result is before you. Any simpleton can follow the narrow path in the light. It is faith's rare wisdom that enables us to march on in the dark. Number five. Understand that we are addressing the sovereign creator God of the universe when we pray, and that he's also right beside, our, uh, right beside us when we pray. You and I are talking to God when we pray, and so, yes, be humble and be respectful, but it also means, it also means, it also means he can handle anything. He can handle anything. If you're, if you're new to this and you want some great prayers, some prayers that sound like real and human, prayers that cry out in anguish and complaint and, and even anger, you should read the Psalms. And you're going to read these Psalms going, man, King David talked to God like that? You know why? Because God can handle it. He's a little, big, big, little bit bigger than us. And then number six, he is aligning our will with his will when we pray, when we pray to him. That's what's happening. So often we believe that prayer is for the purpose of him aligning his will with us. But the reality is that prayer is going to help each of us align our wills with God. It's one of the, it's one of the great privileges of being an heir with Christ. That we get to talk to the Father. And we have the Holy Spirit right by our side. Protecting us and helping us and interceding for us. And, and praying for us with, with groans. It's one of the ways that our lives are deeply and profoundly changed by the gospel. Let me pray, and then we'll have David come out and lead us in our time of response. God, thank you for this message on prayer and your will, and, and we know that this, this challenges us, and, and this, this calls us to dig deeper and get uh, into the nitty-gritty. And so, God, by the power of your spirit, because... Chapter 8 is all about your spirit, and by the power of your spirit, help us to do this. Come alongside of us as we joyously seek your face in all of this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.